Greetings, fellow Trowelers. Welcome to the NUIG Archaeology Society podcast, Have Trowel, Will Travel. There will be no horsing around this evening, since we are joined by Dr. William Taylor of the Max Planck Institute in Germany to discuss the impact of horses archaeologically on the development of cultures in Eastern Eurasia. Our fearless auditor might become a little bit audibly starry-eyed in the discussion of tall, grumpy pack animals, but we'll manage. So sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, back to this episode. We are here with Dr. William Taylor from the University of Colorado, who has graciously agreed to talk to us about uh, horse archaeology, my favorite topic. Um, so I'll just turn it over to you, Will, if you want to start off by maybe telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, my name is, as you said, William Taylor. Um, I'm a curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado's Museum of Natural History here in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I also teach in the anthropology department here um, at CU Boulder. And um, my research explores kind of the relationship between uh, humans and domestic animals, specifically horses, and the way that that relationship um, has developed and the way that it's influenced human societies and human history around the globe. So uh, a lot of my research has been focused on trying to kind of um, stake out some clues to the, the origins of horse culture and pastoralism in Mongolia. Um, so that's probably where I've spent the majority of my kind of archaeological career. Um, but we've, over the, the last years, we've expanded that kind of work, um, which I think you, you, you could call archaeozoology, right? Or some people prefer zooarchaeology. Um, primarily, you know, the information that, that we use for that is, uh, comes from the study of ancient animal bones. Um, over the years, we've expanded that work to places like uh, Kyrgyzstan, China, um, North America, South America, and even Australia. So um, really trying to um, grapple with the impact that horses have had anywhere from uh, you know, Bronze Age Eurasian steppes all the way up to, you know, 19th century Australia. Yeah, well, that's all, uh, that's all, I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, as I said before, if anyone gets me talking long enough about archaeology, I'm most likely going to turn to horses and the impact that they've had on society. And it's, it's kind of, it's one thing that I find interesting just because it's kind of something that not a lot of people really think about. Um, especially if they're not, not even just about horses, but, you know, all the other domesticated animals, especially people aren't necessarily around them a whole lot. People don't really give much thought to just how impactful those domesticated animals have been in the whole development of human history. Um, so it's always, always interesting to, to read about the research that gets done. Um, you know, we take a lot of it for granted. I mean, most of us, right? grow up uh, in a household with one or more uh, domesticated creatures, you know, these tiny predators, uh, which are just sort of living uh, in our house, eating kibbles out of a bowl. And we often uh, just sort of, so much of our world is structured by uh, the presence uh, or the use of domestic animals or it was structured in the case of horses, right? Like a lot of their impact has sort of happened for centuries and centuries. And then, you know, in the last hundred years, it's kind of hard to find a horse, yeah. you know, when you're walking around. And so um, we often don't stop and sort of grapple with the question of uh, what, what would our world be like without these domestication relationships because they're, they're part of the fabric of, of our lives, basically from, um, you know, from the moment we're born, so. Yeah, it's, like you said, it's kind of one of those things that 
people take for granted, especially when you're talking about cats or dogs. Um, although I might say it's a bit of a stretch to call my dog a predator. She's <laughs> very, very distant from her wolf ancestors, we'll say, but it's still, it's, it's true. What kind of dog do you have? Uh, she's a golden retriever, uh, but yeah. she has the heart of a rabbit. She's quite timid and not much of, um, not much of a, a hunter per se. And she doesn't really like to chase things. She just kind of likes to go along, do her own thing. Yeah. yeah, I think my dog is much more along the lines of uh, loosely domesticated wolf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, to avoid me going on for hours about my own dog and asking more about your dog, because I will do that if given half the chance. Um, I guess let's start with, so you said you worked for Mongolia. I know you told me before that you worked in Mongolia for at least a decade or so. Um, what kind of work did you do there? So um, I started in Mongolia. Uh, I visited Mongolia for the first time. Uh, it's actually in 2011, so not quite a decade. And I visited actually as a student. I had just finished uh, my undergrad degree and I went to be a part um, of a Smithsonian project that was kind of exploring um, one of the earliest um, kind of herding cultures in Mongolia. And the thing is with Mongolia, right, is when everyone thinks about um, Mongolia, it conjures images of, of Genghis Khan, uh, you know, big empty grasslands, and, and yeah. it's, it's intimately connected with the idea of a pastoral economy, right? Yeah. Um, a herding society and a horse society. Um, the problem is that, you know, especially in the days before archaeology got really um, took off, you know, the, the early part of the 20th century, um, the story of Mongolia and its role in world history uh, has been sort of chronicled by um, the sedentary, usually agricultural peoples on the periphery who were mm. once in a great while just sort of ruined by marauding horsemen, right? And so it's not particularly complete uh, or I accurate. I can't imagine it's flattering either. Yeah, or flattering <laughs> history. Um, and as a result, and, and the, the other problem is that that history sort of stops um, you know, in the early part of the, the first millennium BC. And so we didn't really have, um, without archeology, span there's not a lot to go on to understand, you know, just how old is, you know, horsemanship and this incredible, uh, sophisticated culture, way of, way of life economy. Um, and so I got to be part of a project that was um, starting to ask some of those questions by studying um, Bronze Age and Iron Age um, archaeological features in Western Mongolia. And um, yeah, so, so that was my first experience and it was just as a, uh, you know, sometimes we use the, the word shovel bum, right? Like I, <laughs> I was a hired hand. Yeah. Uh, and I was probably valuable more for my ability to move heavy rocks and to use a shovel than anything else. But over, <laughs> the, over the last decade, um, that project has gotten more and more sophisticated. And, and essentially what we started doing is, uh, you know, we recognize that there are this, there's this incredible data set of, uh, typically kind of ritually sacrificed and buried horse remains. And they're, they're individual horse burials um, consisting of, of the head, uh, of the, you know, the bones of the neck and the hooves. And the, um, these features all of a sudden, you know, at the later part of the second millennium BC, uh, appeared all over Mongolia, 
And at some cases, right there, you might have, so typically what they are is, um, they're little burials that, that were occurring outside, kind of along the periphery of a, um, either a standing stone or a, or a burial mound. And in some cases there were, you know, four, five, six of these at a given site. And in some cases there were several hundred or even thousands. Wow. Um, and so uh, it looks like, you know, from kind of a squinty eyed look at this, like there might be, you know, an interesting story about the origins of Mongolia's horse culture here. But the problem is, you know, no, almost nothing else from the archaeological record. No nice habitation sites, obviously no historical records, really very, no artifacts other than, you know, horse bones, essentially. And so that was the starting point that we had to work with, um, you know, with my, with my dissertation work and with trying to understand uh, the significance and the origins of, of horse culture in Mongolia. And so, you know, over the years, what we started to do is build up a toolkit, right, um, for how can we understand human activity and the human relationship with horses um, just through bones. Um, and we started, you know, with the tools that were available to us. You know, there's there was some literature out there on the ways that things like horse riding, um, you know, uh, healthcare, this kind of thing might show up osteologically. But uh, we also started looking a lot at modern museum collections um, to find new lines of evidence that might help us, right? Um, looking at things like wild horses or, you know, one of the really coolest, most helpful collections is at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History where there are all of these specific animals with a specific uh, life and history that was known. Some examples are like the horse of, of General John Blackjack Pershing. There's like famous racehorses. There's also, there's also uh, a zebra named Dan. Uh, and Dan the zebra was imported in the early part of the 20th century, um, given to Teddy Roosevelt by the king of Abyssinia, which is, I guess, now Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, and then they used poor Dan for a decade or two to try to domesticate the zebra, uh, you know, hitching him up to carts and trying to ride him. And then yeah, I think I've heard of Dan the zebra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ultimately trying to sort of breed the zebra behavior out of him. And so all of these kind of accumulating all these, these interesting uh, specimens and their life histories, we started to build kind of a toolkit for, using skeletons to understand the origins of uh, horse culture and horse transport and herding and, and such in, in Mongolia. Okay, that, that's, re that's really cool just to kind of hear the, the progression of how this developed. So when you were mentioning, um, you find the burials of the, the horse skulls and the, the leg bones and the hooves and all of that. Um, so one, one article that you had written for National Geographic um, about Zirdegchigan Kushu. <laughs> the <laughs> I, pronunciation is Zirdegchigan Hosho. Yeah, I definitely got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that was just, <laughs> that was me yeah. sounding it out absolutely phonetically. But um, so I, I glanced through, through that article. And is that kind of what you were what you were referring to? These yeah. So that that article was um, uh, one of the sites that I I had funding for. So my my work is kind of a mix of field archaeology and museum stuff. Yeah. And with the bones, a lot of the work is just is museum collections research. But that was uh, for the um, my dissertation work. We got some 
um, funding to go out and excavate um, one of these sites. Um, specifically, we were trying to assess whether, right, um, this, this uh, eastern side of, of these burial mounds was kind of the, the place where people were putting their transport horses, right? Mm -hmm. The ones that are showing, we kind of had this hypothesis that it looks like there's a special row, basically of horse burials at most of these sites that are, we're getting adult male horses and they're ones that are showing us all these interesting kind of transport, horse riding, bridling related problems. And so that's, yeah, that's what we were trying to assess at that site. Okay. That's interesting. So would you think that perhaps they, for these kinds of burials, because I, I would, you know, I'm just assuming that not all the, all the horses were buried at these kinds of sites, but it would be perhaps uh, special ones or perhaps ones that they thought as being important, either through virtue of however the horse is related to the, the rest of the horses, perhaps by what it looks like, or perhaps by it had a lengthy and impressive service. Yeah, it's, so it's really difficult to assess, right? Because, yeah. um, I mean, over the decades, you will, if you read through literature about horse burials that you find, whether you're in, you know, uh, Ireland or uh, Sweden or Mongolia or even North America, you find people essentially just sort of uh, look at the bones and sort of extrapolate guess as to what they think the story of a particular horse is. And, and sometimes with really, really careful uh, work, you know, you can reconstruct a lot about an individual animal's life history. But often one of the kind of things that pops up over and over again is we often find that kind of across cultures, the horses that are in chosen for ritual sacrifice are old and they have a lot of weird problems. And initially, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, the folks that were writing about this were basically suggesting that people were sacrificing their kind of lame uh, loser horses that were sick or, you know, going to die anyway, right? Yeah. Um, but in fact, I think more often than not, instead what you're having is, um, you know, if, in the case of, for example, if you have horse, horses that were buried along with an individual uh, human, more often than not, you're gonna find that those animals were um, the ones that had a lot, those are the ones that have the most um, problems related to being used in transport for a long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think more a better explanation is that um, you know when somebody passed on, that their favorite horses, you know, were essentially going making the trip with them. Um, I think that's a, a more common practice in antiquity, basically all over the globe. Um, you know, we. We know from historical sources, et cetera, for example, in North America, that, that often, you know, that, that sort of thing would happen. In, in Mongolia, at a site where you have, you know, one site, there's, I think, 1,700 horse sacrifices at a single site. Obviously, that can't be the case, right? Yeah. Uh, where someone is not going to have 1,700 favored horses. Um, and so, um, in fact, there's a lot more complicated things going on um, in pastoral societies. So, yeah. horse, horse riding for um, folks that, you know, you and me that come from like a Western European background is often thought of, um, you know, as a kind of a transport oriented activity. Um, yeah. And the animals... It, it might be that I only have one horse and that horse lives in a stable. Um, and I'm certainly, uh, I bought that horse from someone else. I certainly didn't, you know, raise it on my own. Um, that framework is not the same one that 
many, many groups, especially in the grassland areas of, of the world, um, had with horses. In fact, um, one of the most important roles horses have played, uh, for example, in Mongolia, from their um, appearance in the archaeological record, is one of livestock, right? So yeah. uh, horse meat is, is important in some, some steppe cultures. Horse milk is extremely important in Mongolia. Yeah, that's uh, right. Right. Um, the, this fermented horse milk drink, in Mongolia you call it ayrig. In other um, contexts, I think the, the Russian word is kumis. Um, right. Um, and yeah, in some societies, you know, that was for like the summer months, like a huge, huge source of um, nutrition, calories, whatever, right? So uh, this kind of relationship um, is also uh, one that was, so, so when we go back to Bronze Age Mongolia, we have these two relationships together, right? You have the transport relationship and the livestock relationship. And uh, what, we're, what we find that at these Bronze Age ritual sites, I should say that the, the culture we're referring to, for those who are curious and want to learn more, is, is often called the Deerstone Hirksur culture. And Hirksur is a complicated Mongolian word, but it's often shortened to just DSK so if you, or DSKC um, for complex. So if, if you want to learn more on the subject, that's a good shorthand to know. Um, but basically what we find at, at those sites where you have dozens or even hundreds of horse burials is that there are two groups, basically. You have uh, animals that were chosen for essentially burial, right? And those are that person's, um, likely that person's favored animals. And those are going to be tend to be adult um, male horses, right? Um, but then you also have animals that are being selected for sacrifice, and those might not have any specific connection to this person. Um, and those are sort of uh, following the rules of pastoral management of a breeding herd of horses. So uh, they tend to be older than, you know, maybe 15 years of age and female, which is, you know, when you're, when you're breeding a herd of horses, you basically would have a single stallion probably. Um, and you would have your herd follows kind of the natural herd hierarchy of horses. Your herd is going to be composed primarily of adult breeding females and young horses, uh, whether they be male or female, who have not yet quite reached kind of sexual maturity, right? And the reason, right, is that the natural herd hierarchy of horses, kind of this, we call it a harem system, right? A yeah. lead, lead male and X number of females and young. So when your young horses get to be two, three, four years old, and they start to reach breeding age, uh, they they are trouble, right? And they, <laughs> they're going to compete for access um, to the females. Um, they're they're going to start to sort of um, cause all, all kinds of trouble. And so when people are breeding horses, they either castrate uh, or slaughter young males before they reach that age right yeah and so when we looked at the kind of you can you can by looking at the teeth primarily of horses you can get a really good sense of the age and the sex that the animal was because males have um these large canine teeth yeah and the teeth of a horse are sort of a record for their age so um if they wear in a particular way over time so um by looking um you know, at a given site and, 
and looking in detail at the kinds of horses and their age and their sex categories that are popping up, we're seeing, in fact, that most of the animals at a given are actually falling into one of those two categories, either the like elder females or um, a, you know, one or two year old. Uh, and I, in fact, it's half, one and a half or two and a half year old animals, basically, because these, these events seem to have pretty much always taken place in the late fall or the winter. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have the separate group of here are the transport horses and those tended to be, you know, adult uh, and male. And those are the ones that were yielding, um, you know, really nice uh, pathological features that we would link with their use in, in transport. Okay. It's almost like just kind of hearing you describe all that, it's, it, it kind of sounds as though like through sacrificing these horses, especially if it's done, um, like, or if these, these horses are being buried with an individual, it's, it's almost like they're kind of being sent to whatever afterlife they believe in to kind of accompany the dead or, you know, now populate the afterlife with another herd. I think that's totally reasonable. You know, I, I tend to shy away from, uh, you know, pr prognosticating too much into what people's um, religious beliefs were because they're sometimes really, really hard um, to kind of empirically engage with in the archaeological record. But the truth yep. is when, when we find a funerary tradition that is, you know, just loaded with horse remains. I think it's uh, it's reasonable based on the, the evidence that we have in both in Mongolia and in many, many parts of the ancient world to realize that when you have a horse culture, um, it tends to shape the way that folks are thinking about the afterlife and how you would be prepared for the afterlife. So yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of bad archaeology and bad uh, evidence out there that kind of it really mysticizes um, things like horses, uh, chariots, and the the sun. Yeah. Right. Um, if you poke into horse archaeology, you're going to very quickly come across some kind of Indo-European horse-sun cult stuff, and some um, it's not made up um, from nothing. So yeah. um, in, in Mongolia, one interesting aspect about these, you know, dozens or hundreds of horse burials is they are essentially all uh, oriented facing um, the local area of the rising sun, probably in the, you know, fall or early winter season. Um, so that's a really strong, obvious, connection right yeah and these you know folks were being buried with a team of animals essentially leading them and um you know some of these uh, features even appear to have sort of wheels on each corner of the grave sort of huh. made in stone right not real wheels but sort of a facsimile yeah and so it, uh, you know it would be wrong to deny that the uh, there was a powerful, um, you know, association in the belief system of ancient people in Mongolia. The first, the first horse herders in Mongolia certainly had had those associations. It had nothing to do with, for example, Indo-European people, um, but it was definitely a, a very important part of, you know, their belief system yeah definitely i mean even though i personally um just because i i grew up reading fantasy books and i write fantasy stories myself so i always kind of i like some of that mystical um interpretations of things but i always kind of almost take with a grain of salt or i you know i don't try to fall into that completely because there's a bit of a running joke at least um 
like at my in my department where uh, if something if you don't understand something, it's it's ritual or it's ceremonial. That's kind yeah, of the go to description. That's what our gals' <laughs> favorite thing to do. Yeah. But the, the thing is, it's a hard line to walk because yeah. Uh, one of the so the flaws of the the first archaeology that kind of emerged, right? Um, the flaw, you know, sometimes called processual archaeology. Yeah. The big criticism was that you uh, sort of excluded um, these huge aspects of that are a huge important part of human life, and we know that because we're humans today right uh things like um identity and belief and religion and so um the the response to that is often uh it's very very tempting to in the process of trying to add those things back into archaeology it's very very tempting to just you know speculate um or People often suggest that we can read archaeological materials like a text, um, you know, and, and we can take a you know context to sort of add a, a bunch of, of layers of, of meaning and, and this kind of thing. But the problem is that ultimately, what you if you do that, you end up sort of uh, adding whatever your pre-existing ideas were sort of into the archaeology, and yeah. I think that most important thing to that I try to avoid in my work is I I think it's amazing when we're able to make our archaeology relevant to things like um, you know religious belief and identity etc but but we have to be very cautious that we don't end up just sort of projecting our own fantasies on yeah the yeah, uh, we try, you know, we've, we've talked about that a lot in some of our, our classes and or we've, we've read through um, various articles or reports where that happens. And my, my professor's always, you know, reminding us that we always bring our own baggage, our own bias to whatever we right. study. You got to keep that kind of in the back of your mind. Um, yeah. So it's always something that, you know, I kind of think about when looking at things like these, especially um, burial sites or cemeteries or anything like that um but i mean it, it is you know you can't deny that there's there's something special behind something like you know they're all oriented a certain way or they're right. all buried in a very specific way that's something that kind of makes you stop and go okay there's something special going on here there's something behind Absolutely. this yeah and uh you know at least in bronze age mongolia there you know we do i i, I painted a bit of a false picture there by saying we have no other information. We also do have, you know, some some carvings on these standing stones, which would tell us uh, along the same lines, there, there are some beautiful, beautiful images uh, of horses with, you know, what appears to be the sun. Um, you, you know, that is, uh, that's not speculation. It's right, you know, right there yeah. in the archaeology. Um, and uh, there, it's also inappropriate to go too far the other way and say, you know, um, deny something that's that's obviously sort of com coming through in the archaeological record. So I think it's very interesting and very powerful this connection between um, horses and the sun in the kind of ceremonial practices of the earliest horse herders. I mean that's that's really, really interesting. And it's not an accident. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot to be learned through, um, you know, poking deeper into those questions. Yeah, no, I, I also find it just fascinating just to kind of look into this and, you know, reading these different articles, you're looking at these, I'm actually kind of looking at one, a picture of one of those, um, stones there uh it looks like it's got some deer carved into it but it's just it's just so cool to kind of think about especially like when you when you come across something like this and there are those very evident connections and you just kind of kind of stop and, and wonder about it um, yeah uh, the the deer so the name deer stones comes from the fact that many uh 
if not most of these incredible standing stone um, features are carved with elaborate and we call them deer in america we would actually call these elk right i mean yeah uh, in uh sort of eurasian uh parlance i think you might call it red deer you know but uh or marl deer maybe mm -hmm. um but it's essentially you know cervus elaphus it's a it's an elk and yeah. they're huge impressive beautiful intricate carvings um and it's truthfully one of um the most incredible um kind of tangible heritage um sort of collection of material uh, anywhere in the world but it's incredibly poorly um, appreciated by the international community right um because the scholars that have spent you know um decades working on this um have primarily up until you know the last 15 20 years been publishing their work in russian or mongolian language ah uh, yeah um and over time those deer stones actually become more like horse stones right so yeah. at the later part of that deer stone period uh you actually have these beautiful horse images becoming very common and and the um what we call the classic mongolian deer style sort of wings yeah well they are they're absolutely gorgeous to look at and um it'd be great to see some more research done on them or even some of yeah, those so papers translated if, if people are listening and interested um my my partner on this you know 10 years of research started as a mentor you know and continues to be in some way uh, my mongolian um colleague who is essentially you know the world expert on deer stone carvings and artwork uh, his name is Bayer saihan it's b-a-y-a-r-s-a-i-k-h-a-n and he you can go to his academia edu page and check out all kinds of incredible scholarship which is you know it was published in mongolia for the most part although he publishes a lot in english journals too um, and it's all there at your fingertips so if that aspect of the artwork and the style and the carvings and stuff that interests you um, i encourage everybody to check that out I, for one, will definitely be checking that out. I've <laughs> just written, written down his name right here. So that's, <laughs> that's my week sorted. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely fascinating. Um, so kind of going back to something that you mentioned way before um, about looking for pathological indications of domestication. Now, I've read, yeah. um, so like I read something by David Anthony, I think, where he did a study on teeth and like the bit wear on teeth. Um, but I've seen a couple of articles here that suggest there's also some marks kind of left behind by like nose bands. Um, how, I guess, how does that kind of work? Be, and what other signs do you look for to try to see if a horse has been domesticated or not? I mean, truthfully, um, you know, the way that folks think about skeletons and their relationship to horse riding and stuff has has changed a lot over the decades you know back when folks were initially starting to study domestication they were doing things like measuring size and and yeah. variability and the goal was really to identify hey here's domestication and it's different from being wild Right. And so it's like a kind of a binary, like this is what this is and we're looking for it yeah. over time. Um, you know, and, and Anthony and, and those guys did um, some other folks, uh, Juliet Kluttenbrock, for example, um, what they found with the bit bitware was the first indicator that um, actually a, like an active response of the skeleton of the body 
to the human activity of, of riding the horse or whatever um, is traceable and we can we can actually uh, find this this specific activity created a specific response in the body that we can then trace and find and use to make important inferences but uh, over time right you think about riding a horse and the bit is uh, only one piece of the process of riding a horse and um, the initial response to the bit where was oh well I mean uh, you can ride a horse without a bit right um, or it's but the truth is every aspect of riding a horse or using a horse to pull a cart a carriage a chariot um, is impacting that animal's body and if it impacts the animal's body it's going to impact the skeleton in some way right and so there is almost no end to the kinds of information that you can get out of a well-preserved intact horse skeleton i mean over the years people have discovered that riding a horse produces certain uh, trauma patterns to the lower back um, that are potentially exacerbated by not using a frame saddle um, a, you know a scholar uh, by the name of, of dr fiona marshall has uh primarily working with with donkeys right but the same principle yeah. applies has shown that the actual shape and the internal structure of the leg bones of an animal that is wild versus one that's used for work all the time um, are going to change in recognizable ways um, anytime you have overdevelopment of a muscle uh, right there's a chance that that is going to leave um, a recognizable indicator on the bone so so for example we've you know folks have reported animals that are being used to pull pull carts um, tend to develop uh, a lot of kind of uh, you know muscle attachment ossification stuff in their in their front limbs mm -hmm. um, you know the shoulders um, obviously you know banging your hooves into the ground over time can can leave uh you know an impact on the lower limbs um and the skull uh is just a treasure trove of information where riding or carts might might introduce problems to uh the neck or to the breathing um you know, we, we actually found that you can, uh, many of the same problems that we see in um, ridden horses actually also show up in uh, zoo animals that were never used for transport, but were kept in captivity. And so they develop things like stress, breathing, or posture problems. Interesting. Um, we even uh, recently, um, uh, working uh, with uh, a a veterinary friend of mine who's kind of an expert in in um, you know equine health issues, we identified that there are potentially respiratory diseases that you can get from living your life in a stable that show up osteologically. Right? Really. And so, uh, looking at a skeleton. You're often at the mercy of what uh, preservation has left you, right? So in Mongolia, while there's all these amazing things that we could learn from the vertebrae, uh, we have to work pretty much just with the skull. And yeah. um, but we we just put together a paper where uh, we've potentially been able to distinguish between riding and chariots based on the the damage pattern to the teeth, right? So. I think there's no no end to the kinds of information and the kinds of detail you can get uh, with the right data set and with the right um, modern comparative of uh, you know natural history collections of known life histories like Dan the zebra 
that yeah. we can that we can use to kind of bolster our understanding of the skeleton. Okay, that's that's really interesting, especially because um, I kind of come at it from a an equestrian's perspective. So I've done a lot of riding horses, and I owned two horses back in the states. Um, and kind of when I first, so Anthony's study on bit wear on the teeth was my first introduction to kind of that idea that horse riding or uh, chariotry or that kind of thing would leave pathological signs. And I remember I first kind of read it and went, I almost didn't believe it at first. Oh, it's just extremely <laughs> uncomfortable topic for, uh, <laughs> so, so honestly, one of my biggest sort of uh, banes of my existence <laughs> discussion like every equestrian starts from the same place which is that horse riding is not like capable of leaving pathological lesions and they also really can't wrap their head around the fact that uh chariotry started before mounted horseback riding right these are th these are things that are sort of ingrained into the psyche and it's not because you're wrong it's just because you have too much familiarity with what modern horsemanship is like and it makes it really really hard to like over time the impact of humans uh on the horse skeleton is sort of declining right i mean yeah the the messiest skeletons you will ever see are the bronze age and the iron age ones mm -hmm. right especially after when we first invented the metal bit uh i mean it is shocking and if you really want to like scare yourself <laughs> just you know google some of the 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 bit types that people were using for example in like uh you know the byzantine era i mean when when pe every time someone invented a new form of horse control it was probably horrific yeah. um in terms of its impact on the horse and it's a testament to us that it's only taken us you know uh four thousand years to kind of like uh tone it down a little bit but uh if you go to mongolia you will see a different relationship between people and horses which is not um strongly concerned with uh you know uh how's what's the right way to put this um <laughs> It, it will be, it is occasionally upsetting to people who come from an American framework about, you know, ethical treatment of animals. Yeah, because uh, at least for us, you know, horses are pets, basically. And so it's kind of right. a, a hobby, something nice to have. Whereas, you know, if you go to a place like Mongolia, the horse is could could easily be entirely central to that person's livelihood and so they're yeah, going so to the, view the, the horse as different think about it is how, what does your car look like right now and how do you take care of your car um you know versus uh maybe your neighbor down the street who's got the you know uh 1964 camaro or whatever um what does that car look like and what is the role of that car in your life versus their life? I mean, I think that's a good analogy yeah. because, I mean, uh, it would also be totally inappropriate to suggest that Mongolians don't take care of their horses. Oh, definitely. Just no. that their concerns are functional um, rather than sort of moral. Yeah, right? yeah, which is, it's just, a, and I know that's kind of one thing that um, I at least sometimes have trouble kind of discussing with other horse people as well especially the ones who are um let's see how <laughs> how shall i say it? the ones who are very much into uh their horse's well-being but they treat the horses like they're made of glass um and so they you know i've encountered people who have a very hard time understanding how different people like in Mongolia or even like out um, west on ranches where the horse is integral to the running yeah. of the ranch and it's not that they are necessarily being mistreated it's just it's that the horse is serving a different function there and yeah. yeah and so it's 
you know, so like I, like I said, it was just, it was a bit hard to kind of wrap my brain around at first, because I was like, why, you know, it, it couldn't possibly be leaving this much evidence on skeletons, because, but then I, you know, I started thinking more about it, started reading a little bit more about it, especially since, you know, you kind of think about how, like you said, in the, in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, the horse was probably getting a lot, ridden a lot more. Yeah, exactly. You have to think about, I mean, like, one thing that we don't recognize going, sorry about the dog barking. (laughs) One thing that we don't recognize as, uh, you know, uh, folks who don't deal with skeletons, right, is that, Mm -hmm. like, uh, when I kick the bucket, somebody's going to be able to come along and tell that I was right-handed. They're going to be able to tell that I spent a ton of time sitting in a computer chair um, and everything else, right? And so the presence of, it doesn't mean that I'm unhealthy, right? Um, the, the, there is, a, a, people are afraid of the idea that riding leaves impacts on the skeleton because they, the, the implication is that the animal was mistreated. But the truth is that the skeleton is a faithful sort of record of yeah. your activity patterns. And uh, the, the skeleton of an animal, if you really wanted to ethically treat your horse, you would release it into the wild where it could range freely on grasses and not have a predator sitting on its back for X number of hours yeah. a day or keep it in a confined space or feed it you know, oats or, you know, these, all of these things are not um, conditions that the horse was meant to deal with. The, well, the flip side of that coin is um, if you wanted to ethically treat a human, you would also release it into the wild, allow it to hunt and gather, right? And I mean, we are also not designed for our constructed environments yeah. either. And so, I mean, I just think, it's very, very hard not to get caught up in the sort of uh, the anxiety of moralizing when we care so much about horses. Mm -hmm. They may mean, especially if you're, you know, someone who has a close personal relationship with the animals, it can be very, very hard not to get uh, to go from the, the objective skeletal evidence to like some implications about what it means and that sort of thing. But the other side of the coin is that your experience with horses means that you have uh, an additional level of insight into um, the, the, that actual relationship of horse and person um, that is a huge, huge asset to you in terms of conceptualizing and approaching archaeological record um as long as you can avoid sort of the the poisoning the well about how you think about the skeleton yeah yeah i guess it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about trying not to let your personal biases or beliefs get projected onto what you're studying um same kind of thing you know you can't and it, it kind of also relates to you know when you're talking about certain periods of history or certain peoples and you kind of you know, you look, you look at it, like, especially if you're talking about um, the position of women in, like, the medieval period, and, you know, you look at some of these things, you're like, oh, gosh, um, how could they do this to, you know, to themselves or to each other? Um, Because you're trying to, like, put modern um, morality onto a time, onto a, a completely different context, so. And not to say there's anything wrong with, with making modern morality value judgments of the past i just think it's nice to the nice thing about a science framework is it allows Mm -hmm. us to temporarily escape that yeah because if you're just being a scientist you don't have to um you're not required to justify it or you don't have to judge you know ancient folks for whatever the way things were and then you can you know you go home at the end of the day and uh, and feel judgmental about it. That's, that's yeah. <laughs> totally fine. I think most of us end up doing that when we, you know, when you look at any culture that's different, 
um, there are things that are uh, seem to make no sense. Um, and then there are things that, that probably that we do, which we assume are uh, the way that the natural way of things that someone is going to look back in, uh, you know, three centuries with, you know, abject horror at the yeah. way that, and, and it, hopefully there is a progression, um, you know, in those things so that yeah. the, we're not uh, in the same category as uh, medieval uh, feudal societies uh, who knows, right? So I think <laughs> that's, why I, I like, <laughs> that's why I like the science framework is because I can just say, all right, we'll set that stuff aside, <laughs> talk about, um, yeah. you know, the objective stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Now it is, you know, after I had my, my brief existential crisis over um, the whole, you know, realizing just how much everything impacts like your skeleton, um, I do find it just fascinating how you know the skeleton just reveals such a story of the individual's life for humans and for horses you know how yeah. just looking at the skeleton and the little little things that get left behind by that individual's life uh, we can now look at thousands of years later and kind of piece together what they did yeah it's it's amazing i mean it's mind-blowing that's why we have all this you know CSI, Miami, and, you know, what forensic files and whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. if it wasn't just unbelievably cool and powerful and informative, uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have these, these aspects of our pop culture and, and like basically anything that you can do forensic pathology, whatever wise with a human, you could do with another animal too. It's just, we have this base of, background knowledge about the way the human body works and all this stuff because we're the most important animal taxon to ourselves yeah but uh horses you know we've been trying to kind of get ourselves there with horses because they're you know ext also extremely significant and important to understand um but the same approach honestly could be done with with any animal and folks have done really cool things um Obviously, the more important a domestic animal is to people, uh, the more, you know, impetus there is to, to do this kind of uh, fact-finding, clue searching in the skeleton. Um, dogs, for example, mm -hmm. you know, they're really cool paleopathology stuff. And um, it's, it's very energizing to realize. It's terrifying and energizing to realize how much is actually recorded um, in your skeleton yeah and i was kind of imagining you know, what if an archaeologist were to dig me up in it maybe a, yeah. you know a century a couple centuries or so i'd hope it'd be a couple centuries at least you have a plan um, like me a lot of my archaeology friends have a plan for ways that you would you know befuddle the future generations what's your <laughs> what's your like grave good or whatever that you would do i'm just gonna i'm just gonna find an extra arm lying around and try to attach it to me <laughs> so, so someone takes it up and go she had three uh, arms <laughs> I think the pathologist would sniff that one out though <laughs> that's 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 true yeah yeah i don't know my plan my plan was to like be buried with some kind of extinct taxon like a mammoth Oh, yeah <laughs> don't really throw them for a loop <laughs> yeah. yeah all right well i think we'll uh we'll wrap it up there because i don't want to keep you too long yeah. um although i could continue talking about this for hours on end this is something that i personally really love um you know personal crises aside <laughs> concerning horses it's something because you know i have a personal connection to horses so i'm always i've been interested in the story of humans and horses yeah well that time. that connection is is your like uh that's your comparative advantage in the, you know uh, folks have really um probably the most influential i guess she you would call her more of a historian than an archaeologist but she focused a lot on um ancient like bridle and bit technology mary Littower. Um, her her huge advantage right was her personal 
the familiarity experience with with horsemanship and she did just unbelievable things with it so i think that that's uh a you know a feather in your an arrow in your quiver um i guess um that uh, will be a huge advantage if you if you stay interested in this stuff yeah well i hope so that'd be great um yeah we'll see i'm just gonna you know I'm, i've been writing down various names as you mentioned them so i'm gonna be doing quite a bit of reading yeah, great. um this has been absolutely fascinating so thank you so much for coming hey, on been, and talking to us about this. Pleasure. and uh yeah, yeah I hope, uh, um it's interesting to to those that are listening and yeah let's let's stay in touch about um horsey stuff going forward yeah, definitely. Now it's a it's a different it's a different perspective. It's not something that we'd get in our usual classes, and so it's it's interest. It's always interesting to hear about um, things that are just beyond our scope. So. Yeah, it's the blessing and the curse of the COVID world. Is it's like um, you know, virtual uh, learning is really frustrating in many ways, but it also you know there's a lot of people just sitting on their couch right now and looking for a chance to connect virtually and whatever. So there are some opportunities there. Yeah, definitely. Well, if you ever find yourself in Galway post COVID, um, we'd be more than happy to host you. And maybe we could actually have you talk in per person. Well, I will definitely take you up on that uh, <laughs> whenever. I mean, I'm for me, I'm a compulsive traveler. I mean, I think the last five years, it's like uh, I, I didn't even really have a stable location i was migrating all the time and, and so for me this this pandemic closure has been a little tough without the travel so whenever it's possible again i, I will definitely take you guys up on that you have been listening to have travel will travel a production of the national university of ireland galway archaeology society if you get a moment please like us on facebook and follow us on instagram and your favorite podcast supplier Thank you for listening.